Good morning, church. Happy Mother's Day. Boy, thank you. <laughs> you know, in my family, when, when Julie and I first got married, I explained to her that in my family, Mother's Day was this uh, annual opportunity for her to showcase all of her motherly talents and that the tradition would be that she would get up in the morning, make us breakfast in bed, you know, maybe do the laundry, change the oil in the car, cut the lawn. Um, she quickly saw through that and led me to repentance and uh, I'm happy to say that yesterday we had the opportunity to celebrate. I kind of had the chance to wine her and dine her. We showered her with gifts. And we ended the day with a trip to Hank's Custard. And if you haven't been there, that is absolutely the matter of fact, you should go there today after all the other stuff. But I'm not preaching on Mother's Day. I just wanted to share that little, I don't know why I wanted to share that. But anyway, in 1861, Emily Dickinson wrote a poem, and it was titled, Hope is the Thing with Feathers. I've read that poem, I've read it several times, and I have to tell you, I still have no idea what that means. You know, the only thing that I could think of was maybe she had a parrot that was named Hope or something like that, because it made no sense to me. Um, then in 1975, Woody Allen authored a book that was called Without Feathers, um, and I have to admit that kind of resonated with me. I understood where he was going. The point here is that this vague concept of hope is absolutely essential in hard times. And today my sermon is going to come from First uh, Peter. And uh, um, I've taken the, uh, I, uh, th this is going to be uh, um, a series, and its title of the series is uh, Reason for Our Hope. And I have taken that title from a theme verse found in 1 Peter 3.15. And that verse reads as follows, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. This is a sermon that has taken me 30 years to finish. And I think you'll see why as I go on. Um, I remember my advisor in seminary, it was a guy named Dr. Pierce, and he once said that he had uh, never met a Christian in America who said that 1 Peter was their favorite book of the Bible. You know? he, he said that if you were to ask American Christians what their favorite book in the Bible was, uh, uh, they might say that, you know, I find great comfort in the Psalms, or, or I go to the Proverbs regularly for wisdom, or in the New Testament, you know, I love the Gospels, I love Luke or John, or, or my favorite book is Romans or Ephesians because of the depth and the clarity of the theology. But Dr. Pierce said that he had never met a Christian in America who said, First Peter is my favorite book. But he also shared that often when he was teaching a seminary class uh, with international students, and when he asked that question, uh, Many of them would say, you know, my favorite book of the Bible is 1 Peter. And when he asked why, the answer almost universally was because 1 Peter gives Christians in my country hope because so many of them are suffering. 1 Peter is all about finding hope in times of suffering. And that's why the title to this message today is Finding Hope in Times of Suffering. Let us bow our heads. Let's pray. Father, we, we, we live in wicked times. 
We live in this day and age when uh, we see suffering all around us. We, we, we don't have to look far uh, on our internet feeds. We don't have to open the paper and read very far before we read about senseless deaths in neighboring communities, uh, oppression in foreign countries, uh, war, strife. But yet, Lord, we know that you bring us hope, and we thank you, Lord, for doing that. So we pray today that as we look into this scripture, that you open our hearts, that you open our minds, and that it is your word that gives us this hope. Bless us, we pray. Father, I pray this in your name and for your glory, and in the name of your precious Son, Jesus. Amen. So our scripture today comes from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Dixie did a wonderful job reading that. Um, in its original Greek, 1 Peter, 3 through, 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9 is a massive run-on sentence. The way that Dixie should have done this was come up, take a deep breath, and then just let it rip, you know? Um, English teachers would pull their hair out over Peter's grammar. In fact, the run-on sentence actually goes on for 10 verses, from verse 3 to verse 12. And Peter tells the recipients of this letter in his day, and he speaks to us today, that the way you're going to thrive, the way that you're going to get through these crazy coronavirus hyperinflation times, or whatever else life throws at you, is by holding on to your hope. So in 1 Peter 1.3, he writes, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Friends, we live in times where hope is a scarce commodity. You know, we are still struggling with this coronavirus and its uh, various mutations. We are, we are seeing a time of skyrocketing inflation where our paychecks don't go as far as they did just a couple of months ago. We are seeing this concept of reality challenge as our children are encouraged, are, are encouraged to choose their own genders. We are seeing our culture embrace anything that is anti-God. And we are seeing all types of fixes proposed for our various maladies and afflictions. We are seeing all types of experts with harebrained ideas coming forward peddling some new <coughs> snake oil or, or, or miracle cure. And it never ceases to amaze me how many people seek out Oprah Winfrey for her sage wisdom on the gravest of issues. Have you noticed that? I mean, now in the midst of, 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 of virtually any crisis, now in the midst of any, virtually any crisis, you're going to see these snake oil peddlers and these charlatans marketing remedies. You will also see, these, see those who have no idea how to fix these problems. So they do the next best thing. What they do is find someone to blame for the problem. Such is the nature of politics, right? And as if any of that, if any of that stuff would inspire hope to those suffering. But listen, God has given us reason to have hope, even in the worst of times. And, and we're going to dive into the reasons why we should you know, have this hope. But before we do that, before we look at what hope actually is, I just want to take a few moments to show you what hope is not, okay? Hope is not empty hope. You know, one of the things that the coronavirus has brought to the surface of the entire world's consciousness is our fear of death. 
you know, think about this. Why did we practice social distancing? Well, we practiced social distancing so that we wouldn't get sick and die. Or, God forbid, that if one of us were to be a carrier and transmit the virus to someone else, that they wouldn't get sick and die. The point is that coronavirus has raised the world's consciousness of our universal fear of death. And it's such a common fear. You know, in, in, in my role as a hospital chaplain, I frequently encounter people who have received a grim diagnosis. And I'm asked or called upon to counsel people who are told that your likelihood of survival really is not that great. And encountering these suffering people, these suffering patients and their families, I often find myself asking myself this question. You know, when faced with the inevitability of dying, how do people outside of the Christian faith dear, deal with their fear of death? To find the answer, I decided to go to the fount of all wisdom in the 21st century. Of course, I'm talking about Wikipedia, right? So Wikipedia, in Wikipedia, I found this article on how to overcome the fear of death. And as I read the article, I thought, this is not particularly comforting. It, it doesn't give me much hope. So let me share how this article begins. You ready? You may want to write this down. Don't write this down. <laughs> Understand that life is a cycle. People are born, people die, and more people are born. Don't fear that you're being singled out and that you have to fear death. So far, that's really helpful, isn't it, right? I mean, Wikipedia is basically saying, don't take your death personally, okay? <laughs> In other words, stuff happens. Deal with it. Now, here's another bit of the deep wisdom found in Wikipedia. Live life the way you're supposed to. Don't waste your time worrying about death. Instead, fill each day with as much joy as possible, and don't let things get you down. Go outside. Play with friends. Pick up a new sport. And when you think about it, that's not really all that helpful counsel if you're in a nursing home or a hospital. You know, go outside, take up a new sport. But finally, here's what Wikipedia says. Just do anything that will take your mind off dying. Swing dance. Skip rope. Get a tattoo. Take a French cooking class. Do anything to help get your mind off the fact that one day you will die. Friends, am I the only one who sees that counsel as empty hope? I mean, is there anybody here who went, wow, that was really good. We can stop right there. Let's go to the buffet. Come on. See, now, empty hope will not carry us through real suffering. Empty hope won't get us through the death of a loved one. Empty hope won't help us with the loss of jobs with shattered dreams. Empty hope won't help us with the loss of our health or when we go through a divorce, or a broken engagement, or have our hearts broken. And over and against these things, Peter offers us a living hope, a living hope. So in 1 Peter 1.3, we read again, Blessed be the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So what are the qualities of true hope? Now, first of all, speak, Peter speaks to us about a sure hope. 
See, here's what I want you to see. Hope in the Bible is not the same thing as optimism. Hope is not just having a, a positive frame of mind. Hope in the Bible is not whistling past the graveyard. Hope is not turning that frown upside down. The Bible says that the way that you and I find hope is by making sure that we bank on, that we, that we trust in, that we put our hope in something sure and solid that will sustain us in the future no matter what. Throughout the New Testament, the scripture encourages us to hope in God or hope in Christ. And we're told in the Bible to put our hope in God's steadfast love. There are many verses like this. 1 Peter 1.13, therefore, gird up the wounds of your mind, be sober, and listen to this, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So my question to you is this. What are you pinning your hope upon during these difficult times? Are you pinning your hope upon a, a, a politician's promise that the economy will bounce back really quickly? Are you pinning your hope on scientists finding the absolute end-all cure or vaccine? Or are you simply hoping that you won't suffer any real loss from the pandemic or, or in this time of inflation or cultural decline? Well, here's what Peter says is the foundation of our sure hope. Again, therefore, verse 13, therefore, gird up your lines of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope, listen to this, fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? There was a great theologian, his name was uh, a great New Testament theologian named Edward Clowney, and listen to what he said. He said, our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives. Our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming. You see, what he was saying was this. I can have hope in any situation because I have bet my life on this one sure thing. That Jesus, who was crucified for my sins, rose from the dead. And his resurrection guarantees that if I have united myself with the risen Christ, that I will be raised from the dead. And not only me, but everyone who unites themselves with the risen Christ through faith, all of you will be raised from the dead. But how can we be sure that the resurrection of Christ is real? You know, that it's, that, that it's not just a Wikipedia-like advice about distracting ourselves by taking up swing dancing or a, a, a new sport, anything to get our minds off of death. How can we be sure that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just another uh, a snake oil remedy being peddled by some politician or, or televangelist? See, the case for the resurrection of Jesus Christ today, my friends, is stronger today than it ever has been. There's, there's a new generation of Bible scholars who have been examining the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which is the foundation of Christian hope in a fresh way. New Testament historians like uh, uh, Gary Habermas or Mike Lacona, they're the authors of this wonderful little book called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. And they proposed a new way of making the argument for the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
They call their argument the minimal facts approach. And what they are saying in their book essentially is this. They're saying, let us look at the lowest common denominator of the facts, the ones that the New Testament historians agree to, whether they're Christians and, and, and have faith or whether they're uh, 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 agnostic or even atheist. They're saying, what's the lowest common denominator that all these New Testament scholars agree to? And let's make a case for those things. So what they're saying is that if you have an open mind and are asking, what are the agreed upon minimal facts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? That's the question. And here's what they came up with. Here's the first fact. Jesus died by crucifixion. You know, Jesus' death on the cross is undisputed by historians. There's virtually no New Testament historian or any historian of the uh, Greco-Roman period of history that disputes this solid fact. Jesus of Nazareth certainly died by crucifixion. Here's the second fact. Jesus' tomb was empty. New Testament historians agree that not only uh, uh, the gospel's witnesses but Roman and Jewish witnesses, they all concur that the tomb that Christ was buried in was later found empty. Fact three, many people reported meeting the risen Jesus. And, and, and this is agreed upon by believing and non-believing historians. Many of the disciples of Jesus claim that they met the risen Jesus, right? Here's the fourth fact. The early church grew explosively after Jesus was crucified. You know, everyone agrees about that fact. And it's really important for us to remember as we look back over 2,000 years that this claim to the Messiah was not an uncommon claim in the first century, that there would be, there were, would be messiahs other than Jesus, and they drew lots of followers. But the difference was this, that when those other people, those other would-be messiahs were killed by the Romans, and most of them were, their followers went back to their old lives or found themselves a new Messiah. What they did not do was immediately begin to proclaim that the, their Messiah had risen from the dead and that they had met with him. But Jesus' followers were absolutely unique. See, they went everywhere. After the death of the Messiah, they went everywhere proclaiming our Messiah died on a cross for the sins of the world, but God raised him from the dead. So let me just review these facts real quickly. Fact one, Jesus died by crucifixion. Fact two, Jesus' tomb was empty. Fact three, people reported meeting the risen Christ. And fact four, the Christian church grew explosively after Jesus was crucified. So Habermas and Lycona, they argue convincingly in their book that there is no alternative theory that better accounts for these four facts than this one truth. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. See, what we are pinning our hope on in the midst of these difficult times and any other threats to our way of, of, of living is a sure thing. It's a certain thing. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, Christian hope is not just a sure hope, though. It's also a realistic hope, a realistic hope. 1 Peter 1.6, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. What we find here is this. Peter is not a preacher of the prosperity gospel. You know? He is not saying that if you have enough faith, 
faith that the virus will not hurt you or your loved ones. That no one, in fact, there's no one in the New Testament who preaches a prosperity gospel. Here's what Peter is saying. He's saying you may be an atheist or, or, or an agnostic, a Muslim or a Jew. Uh, you may be a cradle Catholic who has always been in the Catholic Church. You may be what we call a C&E Christian. You know, you only go to church on Christmas and Easter. Or you may be thoroughly devoted follower of Jesus Christ, regardless of your belief, regardless of your behavior. I mean, you may be a beacon of integrity in the community, or, or you may be just a little bit shady. Regardless of your education or race or income or position in the church, you have to suffer all kinds of trials. There is no escape from suffering in this world. Yet even in the face of suffering, Christian hope is a realistic hope. Let me show you what I mean. Um, anybody here remember James Stockdale? Nobody remembers James Stockdale. <laughs> James Stockdale was a guy, he ran for vice president back in 1992 on the independent ticket with Ross Perot. And Stockdale had been a U.S. Navy vice admiral, and he was a POW in Vietnam for seven years. In fact, he was the highest ranking U.S. naval officer that was held captive in Vietnam. And Stockdale is credited with something called the Stockdale Paradox. Um, the Stockdale Paradox came from an interview in which Admiral Stockdale was asked if he could describe the characteristics of those who didn't make it out alive from the POW camps. Stockdale said it was really easy. He said that the ones who didn't survive the POW camps were the optimists. Does that strike anybody as odd? I mean, the reporter said to him, I don't understand. I thought optimism got us through hard times. But Stockdale answered, and he said, the optimists all thought, we're going to get out. We're going to be out by Christmas. And then Christmas would come, and Christmas would go. And then they said, we're going to be home by Easter. And Easter would come, and Easter would go. And then they'd say, you know, we're going to be out by Thanksgiving, and then it would be Christmas again. And then they would die, ultimately, of a broken heart, of, of this, this, these failed expectations. And this is an example of the Stockdale paradox. Simply stated, the Stockdale paradox is this. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. Let me say that again. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they might be. So, who will not do well in times of suffering? Well, the optimists. Those who believe this pandemic would be over if we just masked for two weeks, or, or those who were certain it would end by Easter, or this is all going to be over by April 30th. Everything will be normal by May 15th. We will definitely have our dream wedding in June. July 4th, we will celebrate the freedom from this virus. My business will reopen as strong as ever. Here's the point, friends. We Christians are not optimists. And we're not pessimists either. You know, we're not running around saying that the sky is falling and there is no hope. We Christians consider the brutal facts as they are. We look at all of the unpleasantness squarely in the eye. 
But then we say, nevertheless, we will prevail. We will win in the end. And we have set our hope on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Even death will not defeat us. See, ultimately, though, the reason we Christians can find hope in a suffering world is because we have a glorious hope. 1 Peter 1.7 says that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, our glorious hope is that those who have put, those who have put our trust in the risen Christ will receive praise, glory, and honor when Jesus returns. One of my favorite Christian authors is is C.S. Lewis, and he once wrote, he wrote a wonderful essay about 73 years ago called The Weight of Glory, and he talked about what it means that Christians will receive praise and glory and honor when we see Jesus. Here's what he says. He said, Jesus said, no one can enter heaven except as a child, and nothing is so obvious in a child not just in a conceited child, but in a good child, as its great and undisguised pleasure at being praised, not only in a child either, but even in a dog or a horse. The most childlike pleasure is to be praised by someone superior to ourselves. See, we all desperately need to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, from our creator. You know, our hope is not just that you and I will get a well done from Jesus Christ. Lewis goes on to say this. Glory means brightness, splendor, luminosity. And we are going to shine like the sun. We do not merely want to see beauty. We want something else that can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see. To pass into it. To receive it into ourselves. To bathe in it. To become part of it. In other words, one day the trials that we've experienced in this life will pass away. And we'll not only see God's glory, but his glory will shine on us and through us. And we will be filled with God's glory. Listen, friends, there will be dark times ahead of us. But those of you who have entrusted your lives to Christ will one day shine like the sun. We will prevail. We will win, and we will be filled with the glory of God. Let me end with this. You know, one does not appreciate hope and how essential hope is until they are without. I turned 29 in the Persian Gulf. I was the father of a four-year-old who was uh, 5,600 miles away. I was the commander of a transportation and logistics company. And I was well-trained, and I was supported by the best army that the world had ever known. And I was proud. I was ready to do my duty. And I had no need for God. I was a self-made man. Truth be told, I did not expect to live to see 30. But what bulletproof almost 30-year-old is ever really concerned about dying anyway? But I was prepared to lay my life down in that desert. After all, it has been said throughout history that a soldier is glorified only if he dies in battle. So it seemed to me that dying there and then would have been okay. Now, it should be obvious I didn't die there. That's obvious. 
Joe, was that obvious to you? Thank you, Joe. <laughs> but here's the thing. Others died as a result of me engaging with the enemy. When we were attacked, I ordered my men to return fire. And I even drew my weapon, and I fired upon one of the aggressors. And we killed all of that small team that came against us that afternoon. And at the moment that should have been, as a soldier, should have been my greatest triumph, my victory, my proving myself under fire, my world crumbled. And I entered into a period of crushing depression and self-loathing that lasted for five years. See, I was lauded by my peers for winning a battle with the enemy, for protecting my troops under fire, and for successfully completing my mission. I even received a medal for valor. But inside, I came face to face with the reality that that battle could just as easily have gone the other way that I could have just as easily been me and my team that lay dead on that godforsaken desert highway. It seemed, it seemed so arbitrary. I mean, who could say why I lived and the enemies that came against me did not? More significantly, I was convicted of just how easy it is to take another's life. You know, it was simply a matter of sighting in my pistol on the enemy, taking and holding a deep breath, and gently squeezing the trigger, just like I had been trained over and over and over. And then following a thunder-loud noise, a man's life ended. And I wondered who those who lay dead and left behind were. Did one of them have a four-year-old son, a four-year-old son waiting for his dad to come home? What's more? While my men could justify their actions by claiming that they followed orders and performed well, I was the one who gave the orders. I was responsible. And because of the order that I gave, men that were just as certainly created by God as me died. I suffered what they called moral injury. I returned home to my wife and my family and on the outside, life seemed to be going well. My career took off. I had two more beautiful children. But inside, I was a wreck. I felt guilt and self-loathing. I felt like I was a fraud. I felt like each day was just another absurdity and that I should have died in that battle. I had no joy. I had no hope. You know, looking back, I can see that I self-sabotaged. I mean, no one else around me seemed to want to hold me responsible for the lives that I took. No one else thought that I needed to pay for the lives that were lost that day. So you know what I did? I began to punish myself. And I went through a number of jobs. I watched my marriage crumble. I had no God, and I had no hope. But through a series of strange events, let's call that God's providence, I heard the gospel preached, and I still remember, I can remember it as if it were yesterday, I remember being in a church and the pastor opening his Bible to Romans 8.1. Listen to this verse. He said, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Friends, in that moment, I was introduced to Jesus. I mean, here's what I found. Here was the perfect son of God who paid the price for what I owed and for what no one else demanded of me. 
And because he did, I was set free from the crushing guilt and the moral trauma that led me to live without hope for a better day and hope for redemption. What I heard was this. I was not condemned as long as I put my faith in Christ. And if I surrendered to him, I could be in Christ Jesus. I could be free. Because Christ died on that cross, I could stand in the presence of God, confident that he loved me, that, that, that he could love me even though I had taken a life of one of his creations, that I could be forgiven and loved. I could have hope for my future here in this life and for all of eternity. So friends, if you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you can confidently look forward to that glorious day when you will stand before him and share his glory. But Christian, you have reason to hope even today. See, there is no trial that you will encounter alone. There is nothing that will separate you from God your Father. It might hurt. It might be difficult. It might be hard. But never, never forget that Christ suffered and overcame trials that you cannot even imagine so that you, Christian, could stand victorious. Now, if you're not a Christian, if you have not encountered Jesus, let me offer this to you. You will suffer. You will someday find yourself standing without hope for anything better, either now or looking into eternity. You will be crushed if you try to stand alone. Do any of you who don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, do any of you who might be hearing my voice find yourself in that situation now? It doesn't have to be that way. See, Jesus died on the cross so that you could have hope now and for eternity. Again, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And friend, that could be you. So let me encourage you today, lay down your guilt. You don't have to live a life of a condemned man. And please, if you are suffering, surrender your life to the only one who can offer you hope. Come to Jesus. Let us pray. Father God, what you have done for us is beyond anything that we really can even begin to understand the totality we were wicked, we were evil, we were wretches, we were your enemy. And yet, Lord, because you loved us, you shed your precious son's blood to bring us to you. And in that rest, all of our hope. Father, all we can do is say thank you. All we can do is say that we love you. And all we can do is, is just stand in awe. So, Father, on this day, we thank you for that sacrifice, and we pray for all those who are suffering without knowing you. We pray, Lord, that this be the day where you open their hearts, where you bring them to the foot of your cross, so that they, too, can be the recipients of this great and marvelous hope. Father, I ask that you bless us. I pray that you bless us as we leave this place today. You give us a boldness to go out and, and just point to you with everything that we have, everything that we are. We pray for those around us who don't know you. We pray this in your name for your glory. In the name of your precious son, Jesus, amen.